Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, who's back. I made it back. Chris Morales, 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call us. Uh, if you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org. That's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S.org, and click on the OCG Radio Live button. Or you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen to the show unless that's your only means, and then by all means, do so. All right. Um... How about them Cowboys? Yeah! Might as well be. Oh, they they weren't in there. No, they weren't. They didn't make it to the big dance. Oh but, my goodness! But I'm just as happy with the results, so I could cheer that uh, audio clip right now. Uh, as we always say, we're not a sports show, but we it would, we would be remiss if we did not just briefly state that was a great game, and that terrible, terrible, terrible decision to not run the beast mode from second and goal from the one will go down in history as probably the worst call in Super Bowl history. Yeah, what a what a terrible uh what a terrible way to end the game. I think everybody 
wanted to see. Patriots goal line D. Everyone knows what's coming. Marshawn Lynch and uh, mono mono for that one yard. Instead, we go a uh, shotgun shotgun slant off a off a rub route right into a pick. I mean, come on, man, terrible. All right, well. Pitches and catches report in a couple of weeks. Let's go, Yankees. Let's go, Mets. That's right. Let's repeat. Champion. Okay, I don't want to hear any of that nonsense. All right, let's go to our happy recap. Sounds like the CBS Evening News. Boom. (laughs) All right, first things first. Uh, let's send out some get well wishes to Walden House alumni, former Daytop and OCG employee Peter Kehoe, who landed himself in the hospital a week or so ago. Peter, we send out our best wishes to you. Get well soon, and uh, we expect to get a call from you soon. Next item up, we got an alumni, Sean Arbridge, celebrating one year clean and sober. Beautiful, How beautiful about that? accomplishment. Gotta love that. Yep. Daytop alumni, David Negron, just celebrated 28 years clean. Now, I got a nice story about David that he may not even remember, but it left an indelible image on me about who he was and resulted in me carrying that same attitude forward to others in treatment following behind me. Now, he put up on our on his page and then a link was copied over to the OCG radio Facebook page a picture of the Daytop Raider basketball team circa 1989 okay of which there is a picture in studio yeah see right right over there yeah um and now there's only 12 there was only 12 people on the team out of a possible 500 males that okay. were, I'm not saying all 500 were basketball players, but there's 500 men upstate in the upstate facilities, yeah. and we got only 12 people playing. So at tryouts, we had a few hundred guys. You know, you got, you got a lot of ball players in New York City. Sure. I was going to say, out of 500, you figure maybe 100 could play legitimately, and then 12 out of that 100, that's yeah, no easy task. And real throwback, by the way, in studio, because everyone talks about on radio, you need to describe things you can't uh talk about a picture when people are listening mm-hmm. we'll talk the throwbacks such that the socks were longer than the shorts for those of you who know what a throwback basketball shorts used to look like yeah i don't want to talk about the shorts because <laughs> there's a couple of pictures of me in shorts from back way back way back in the day early <laughs> 80s that that are, that are somehow made their way onto the facility bulletin board and a lot of comments are being made but i could take it all right so um when I made the team, uh, shout out to Mike Cato. Mike Cato was a coach. Uh, combination, Vince Lombardi, Bill Parcells, uh, from Brownsville, Brooklyn. Those are heavy or, hitters right or, there. Or, and I'm saying he's from Brownsville. Right. Or Bed-Stuy. I wanted to I always get them confused where he's from. But He's from, I've heard him mention it several times, Brownsville. Brownsville, okay. Uh, so he was the coach. Now, I was still at the time a resident in treatment when I made the team. So I had no money. And Daytop furnished the uniforms and what have you. Okay. Um, but I didn't have any basketball sneakers that I would normally wear when playing basketball. Okay. And Mike uh, drove me and a couple of guys to the 
in the van to a sporting goods store in Monticello, New York, which is like is like the nearest really big. It's not even a big city, but the nearest quote unquote big city to where the Swan Lake facility was. Okay. Maybe about fifteen minute drive from the facility. Close to the city that had like retail shops and right, whatnot. Exactly. Right. And um I was purchased a pair of sneakers. Um did we go uh all star chucks, K Swift. No, what did we uh what were we riding with? I actually and I had to really do a try and get a close up on the picture that David put up because I always thought that they were ponies. Which okay. are real yeah. go back. Yeah, they are. Uh but the, it looks like the Nike, but I never wore Nike because they were uncomfortable and they always cut their sneakers kind of narrow. So it's hard to tell if it's the Nike swoosh or if it's really the pony. But in, in any event, and they were low cut. And okay. I always wore high tops. Okay. And ever since then, by the way, I never wore high tops to play basketball again. I just put on my ankle braces and yeah, yeah you gotta cover the ankles if you go low. And but come to find out it was David Negron who bought them, put up the money. Oh, wow. Okay. To buy the sneakers. Wow. That's awesome. So, David, if you're listening, and I spoke to him over the weekend, I don't know if you even remembered that, that you bought me the pair of sneakers that I used to pet play on that Daytop basketball team. That's pretty That's pretty cool. Great now, story. From that, from from that kind act is where I got, I mean, people – would would donate to others in treatment, you know. So if someone needed clothes, and you know, especially the older members who were getting ready to transition down, down, right. And even when I came out to California, or people in the adult facility who were like kind of my build or what have you, and I always took care of my clothing. So even stuff that I was no longer wearing was in good condition. Sure. Or shoes I didn't wear too often, or even sneakers which I didn't wear too often, which were still in new condition. Sure. And I wear a size 12 or 13, depending on what brand. And, you know, not that many average people wear that size. So. Right. But I would donate and give and so on and so forth and because and that was what was done to me. And I remember that that act by David stands out because otherwise I'd have been playing in the Chuck Taylor. Right, or, right okay. <laughs> or okay. whatever else I was wearing up there at that the, time. The PS Flyers. The PS, there you go. Or the New Balance. Okay. Or new cons from back in the day. Okay. So, um I just wanted to drop that story out there. And by the way, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and correct the New Yorker on air, and I'm not even so sure this is a New York thing, but I've heard you say this over the years. You always pronounce the brand Nike as Nike. Where does that come from? I gotta know right now where that comes from. I it's Nike. <laughs> oh no. Phil Knight, the the owner of Nike, uh, a University of Oregon alum, my friend being from Oregon, we went up there and saw the original Nike shop. There's no talk of Nike. Not, not, I think you might be the only one who pronounces that brand Nike. No, I doubt it. It's nice. That might be a West Coast name, Nike. <laughs> okay, you go you go silent on the E, huh? Yeah, it's Nike. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh... I think that's all I got on the recap. Okay. I wanted to say, too, a great job on the interview. I was not in studio. Mm-hmm. I was out of town, but uh, definitely got a chance to listen to the interview with Dr. Bruja. Um, and it's really, really good information that she provided and uh, a really nice interview. I thought it had a really good feel for it, and I hope um, I hope she comes back. Did you invite her back, by the way? No, actually, I was <laughs> chastised by our uh, – 
our 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 um in-house uh radio critic uh, resident critic that um it was it was a, a well done interview but that I had many points off because I forgot to invite her back as I did our previous guest. Oh, you got to invite the guest back. So um <laughs> I had to let Miss Mrs. Bru- Dr. Bruhan know that I forgot that so, but she's definitely welcome back. Beautiful. All right, why don't we take a quick music break and we're going to come back and get into our show topic parents in recovery. I'm back. Really? By the way, the most famous, the most famous of all time, I'm back, was said by Michael Jordan in 1995. Okay. Well done. All right. Do we know? You're my love. You're my angel. You're the girl of my dreams. And I'd like to thank you for waiting patiently. Today is Parents in Recovery, and then we announce that we're back, and we're questioning, really? So, as I wrote in my show topic uh, description, we know that when uh, parents are in the throes of their addiction, it's no secret that their children suffer, and 
when I say children, there's children where there's different groups. I like to say, you know, the the, uh, the six and under, or six and seven and under, and the seven to twelve and thirteen, and then the thirteen and up, maybe to end of high school age, and then after that, then adult and adult. The the hope is that the youngest ones, believe it or not, are the ones that may have parents. I mean, we don't wish this on anyone, but what we're saying is that if if you're a parent who is in the throes of addiction and you have a child that's a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, and you're able to get into recovery, get out of addiction, and get your life back on track while your child is in that age group, the chances of there being any negative repercussions to the relationship are less than if the child is older, going into kindergarten and moving on upwards. When we start getting into trouble, because no matter how much we try and kid ourselves, children are very perceptive. They start to pick things up. They know when things aren't right. They may not be able to articulate it. They may not be able to formulate it in their minds and describe it, but they can sense it. And then they get to an age, an age I call of intellectual maturity, 13, 14, 15, depending on the child, where they kind of know what's going on, can articulate what's going on, might not be able to articulate how they feel about what's going on, but can see it, know what it is, Etc. Then a good thing happens. The parent makes a decision to go into treatment, start that recovery process. So now you're going through treatment, getting your act together. The kids are coming to visit weekly. Or a few times a month. Okay. You know, depending on whatever the structure is. Okay. In any treatment setting. Um, and at some point, depending on their age, you're going to have to have that conversation. That's a tough one. Now, let's, for discussion's sake, eliminate the young children. Okay, let's eliminate the... What are we defining as young? Five and under, six and under. Okay. Okay. Those who have not made grade school yet. We're eliminating that. Yeah, any, so anyone that's not in kindergarten and down. Okay. That's not to say that a kindergartner can't be perceptive and understand and see what's going on in their environment. But just right. for the sake of discussion. Okay. I think when they're around seven and up, you know, they kind of know something's up. And they kind of, like I stated, are able to see and, and, and know within themselves something that's good, something that's bad, something that's ugly. Okay, so you're now in treatment. You're doing the right thing. You're getting your act together. They're coming to visit. And I think we even talked about this on one show. I don't remember the show. I don't know if it was on triggers or on feelings. I don't remember. But we said at some point, either depending on the age of the child, the discussion of what has transpired has to be broached. If it's a young child, 13 down, 12 down, then it's my responsibility to speak and explain. Okay. Okay. 
if the child is in high school, okay, then it gets a little bit tricky. Because if you're if you're in your addiction and that child is going through late middle school into high school, et cetera, with all of the teasing, and if they know your parents are an addict, and especially if your parents are out there in the neighborhood, okay, and you now have to go to school and deal with that, knowing that not only do you know your parents are an addict, or one of your parents are, that the whole neighborhood knows, the kids in the neighborhood know, and you have to go to school knowing that and deal with that. And so not only do you start to build up animosity and resentment towards the people who may be teasing you or throwing things negative at your you know, towards you, sure. you then start to build up animosity and resentment towards the parent yeah. who is the source, the source, you heard that where I pronounced that. Yes. I caught, I caught myself. Okay. You did. All right. We'll give you credit for that one. Um, the the source and the cause of this resentment and this, um, you know, negative yeah, feeling stuff, or... stuff that's coming their way. And so the reason why I say at that age it's tricky because you kind of have to feel them out to see should I – should. You know, is it going to come forth from them, or do I have to kind of like just nudge the ball a little bit to to start the conversation? Because you certainly don't want to start the conversation and start it with an attitude. No. Now, when I say an attitude, I'm not talking about, quote-unquote, a negative attitude. I'm talking about a certain attitude, and that attitude is... I'm back. Yeah, you are. I'm, I'm, I'm fixed. I'm cured. All, all that has transpired means nothing now. <laughs> it's hats off time Daddy's, if you go Daddy's, there. Daddy's home now. <laughs> uh-uh. Yep. Well, hello, that means nothing to the child. That means nothing to the child. Right. And so that's why we emphasize in our show description in capitals that it's not all about you. What's about you is your recovery. That's about you. Sure. You getting your act together, you getting yourself into treatment, you getting yourself on the right path, that is about you. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what you've done to the parent-child relationship and how that needs to now be repaired, it's not about you. It's about the child. Right. Now, Let's give the parent this, okay, just for argument's sake. Sure. The parent, outside of anyone else, probably knows the child better than anyone else, right? Just for argument's sake. We know there's circumstances where someone, you know, maybe the auntie, the grandma, the uncle, there might be someone that the child is close to that, in truth, may actually know the child better than that parent who's been in their addiction. Sure. Okay. okay yeah. But let's just say, for argument's sake, Ma or Dad no, knows knows the child in okay. terms of their body language when they're saying something, but they're not saying something. When something is on their mind, but they're not speaking it, etc. Okay. Okay. So, with the under twelve, we have to start the conversation, and we have to start it humbly. Is that a word? With humility. 
with what else? What else goes along with humility? Even though we're talking to an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, because some get the attitude, well, this is my child. I'm the parent. Right. Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be apologizing to my child. Don't think we haven't seen that attitude. It needs to be addressed with empathy. Excellent word. That's another big one. So your presentation and how you go about re-establishing that relationship requires your ego, your pride, and your bigger-than-thou attitude because I'm the parent and they're the child has to put all be put to the side. It doesn't mean a thing. It means right there. nothing. Yep. And if you don't do that, then chances are you're going to struggle to regain that relationship. Further damage it, most likely. And the funny thing, and, and we've seen this over and over, is we're talking right now as an, using as an example an eight-year-old. Sure. Okay. Most eight-year-olds aren't that extremely verbal in terms of being able to articulate their feelings and so on and so forth. Right. Right. But they do know what they feel. They may not be able to tell you. Okay. Right. But man, they, their body language speaks very loud. Oh yeah. Okay. And you know you can usually read their 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 body language. Um, you can read their behavior, how they may be acting out in other areas, whether it's in school whether it's in other relationships, you know what I mean? Things, things aren't going the way they should be going. Right. But me, I don't care. I don't know because I'm in my addiction, okay? But now that I'm starting to come out of the the, the haze and the fog of, of drug use and substance abuse, and my mind is starting to become clear, okay, now I'm starting the process of thinking about, okay, where are my kids? What have I done? And by the way, the what have I done is really depends on how long it's been. Yeah. Okay? Yep. Because another example was if if you were in your addiction and while you were in your addiction, let's say a child was born. Okay? okay. So a child was born while you were in your addiction. So that's one scenario. Another scenario is you're not an addict. You have children. And then you become an addict. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so the children get to experience you drug-free, and then they now experience this other person that has just appeared. Sure. As a result sure. of them now becoming an addict. So there's many different scenarios which then dictate how you then approach reestablishing that relationship. Right. Uh, here's another example. Okay. And I'm just going to use my... Use myself real quick. Throw myself out there. Okay? My girls were born four years, five years after the last time I used drugs. Uh-huh. So they were none the wiser. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But for me, I had to just decide, and along with my wife, when that conversation was going to be held because I was under no mistake that they were not going to at some point find out what their father's background was. Okay. I mean, all it would take is a very simple question. Well, 
Why do you work at Daytop? Or how did you start working at Daytop? Yeah, it's about as simple <laughs> as it gets. And uh, that opens Pandora's box right there. So even though they never experienced me as that person, I would at some point have to address that part of my life. Or you might even think, and this may, you know, this may or may not be applicable in your scenario. Maybe this didn't come up for them. But another really obvious opportunities, if they're ever with you at some sort of celebration, wedding, whatever, everyone's toasting, and you're, you've got the uh, the cider or the, uh, you know, just a glass of water. No, club soda. The club soda. Never, um, never a glass of wine at a restaurant if you brought them to the restaurant, and that may. Spark the question. I don't even know if that's a fair application to me personally because I don't drink, period. I, I didn't even drink during when right. I was an addict, so it doesn't right. make a difference. So, But good point. So when so we're here now. We're in treatment, like we said. We're getting our act together. The fog is clearing. It, you know, And I say the fog. About 90 days, right? 90 days of treatment. Get your head a little clearer. Clear, fog's yeah. clearing. I agree with You're that. You're now able to look at what's what's damage personally, my my personal damage, what I've done to myself in in all facets, and if I have kids, okay, and how old they are, what's what's my damage? Take the damage inventory. Inventory, exactly. And and this is all occurring while they're visiting, okay? Because there's no discussion at this time while we're while in these early days about, you know, um, you know what mommy or daddy was doing and so on and so forth. This is just about just reconnecting as human a human family. Right. You know, reestablishing that first before that that conversation starts. Now, one of our callers way back when asked, you know, so you know, when, you know, when should I have that conversation? And or this is and this was with a twenty eight year old child. Yeah, who, okay. I just said wow. child. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. Their child. Right. And we we said, and, he, and the question he wanted to know is, well, should I start the conversation? And we said, well, with a 28-year-old, absolutely not. Okay. Trust me, they'll when they are ready, they will you bring just it. do your thing, keep doing your thing, and they'll bring the conversation to you. Right. So how do we start the conversation with an 8-year-old? What do we say? Well... I call them the top two. I'm not sure what other order people put put them in, but you use the first two unwritten philosophies that we like to talk about all the time on the Honestly show. And forgiveness, sir. Okay, let's jot that down and, and we'll revisit this at another time because he mentioned forgiveness, which is a, one of the later unwritten added, by the way. Honesty and trust. And trust, okay. Trust so you must first be honest. Yeah. Okay. And if we're talking about with an eight-year-old, you'd be appropriately honest. So there's honest, eight-year-old honest. There's 18-year-old honest. Okay. Okay. So with an eight-year-old, do they need the down and dirty details? No. They don't need the down and dirty details. Right. Okay. They need the summary and so they can draw a picture in their mind. But then again, you as the parent, have to determine whether or not if that child has been exposed to other things, meaning, you know, if their friends know about what mommy and daddy was doing. And at eight years old, they're being teased and told about, hey, seeing your, your dad on the corner in front of the store or your mom doing this or, your, you know, and so on and so forth. That's a different story. Right. Because then that means the conversation has to be a little bit different. 
when we might have to get a little bit more dirty and, 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 and grimy about the details. Because when you start talking, they may ask, hey, but Johnny said that he saw you down in the corner doing this and doing that. What are you going to say? You can't lie. You can't tell an untruth. If the eight-year-old knows it, you're now in a position that you got to be up front. Got to go a little further than you may have wanted to. You got to be up front. Now, if they're not exposed to all of that, then that's different. So it's a complex conversation, but as we always say, we try and keep it simple. Complex conversation, but we try and keep it simple. Yes, I know that's a dichotomy. But two truths can exist at the same time. Sure. It can be complex and it can and it can also be simple at the same time. So yeah. based on whatever that child's knowledge of what your life has been will dictate again we're talking about the eight year old, will dictate how your how you will broach the subject and the details of that conversation, how the details will be laid out. Less is more, if that's all that's required. But if more is required, then you have to give more. Because you can't be seen as holding back when the child knows more. Yeah, you don't want to continue the trend of the child believing they can't trust you or that you're being dishonest. Honesty and trust. Mm -hmm. You're trying to reestablish the relationship. Yep. Okay? This is not the time to worry about how your child looks at you. Right. That's why I eliminated the age five and under-ish. Okay? Because in that age group, mommy and daddy can do no wrong, even if mommy and daddy are doing wrong. Right. You know? But there, there comes a time, I call, I think it's called the latency age group, seven to 11-ish, 12-ish, okay. okay, where they're aware enough intellectually to understand things that are happening in front of them. Right, right. You know what I mean? And so we can't fool them. So we got to be honest. And say what what mommy and daddy has experienced, what decisions we've made. And then here comes that big, big, big question that's going to throw you for a loop. The why. But why, mommy? Why, Daddy? Why do you have to get? Why do you have to start using? That's also a a great time to not start making excuses either, because kids will pick up on that fast. You gotta own it at that point. Just so own I, it. I shouldn't say. Well, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Honesty must rule the day. Humility must rule the day. Ownership must rule the day. Taking responsibility must rule the day. Anything short of that will come back to haunt you in in the reestablishment of that relationship. So we now let's we let's take a little further. Let's move up in age, past the latency age, let's get into the adolescent. The 13, 14, the finishing middle school, that's what they call it out here in California. I think where I'm from in New York, we call it junior high school. So uh, let's use a common term. Eighth grade, they're wrapping up eighth grade, going into high school, ninth grade, tenth grade, etc. So they're 
13, 14, 15, 16, those are probably, would you agree, Mr. Producer, the worst ages to be and your parents be an addict out, just out there on the streets and everybody knows about it? Yeah, I'd say I'd say those are probably the worst ages, and for a multitude of reasons, because you're starting to get in an age where not only you're well aware of what's going on, but you're you have a peer group who is not necessarily inside the house playing, you know, playing kid games when they get off of school. You your peer group is out in the community, maybe organized sports or whatever the case may be. So the odds of other folks knowing about it or finding out about it is um is pretty big. And then you're also becoming of an age where if you don't know how to cope with your, what you're going through appropriately, there are things available to you and, and you're, you're more likely to get into some trouble, whether it be getting into fights for people making fun of you, um, experimenting in drugs yourself. I mean, well, yeah. How am I going to, how am I going to cope? How am I going to cope with all that's coming my way? Right. Aside from the normal puberty and the adolescent growing pains that I'm going through, but the fact that my, you know I'm now fully intellectually, environmentally, and all the other leads, whether you can have whatever words you want, yeah. uh, that in my parents or one thereof is an addict and is just out there on the streets, etc. And you know my peers, like you said, my peers know about it. Everybody in the school knows about it, and and you know. How do how do I face people? How do I go to school every day? And so, oftentimes when we deal with adolescents, as we had for twenty something years, mm-hmm. and trying to find out a little bit of their family history, right. and my goodness, how many times did we find out that? Yeah, oh yeah, my parents are an addict. So we got this generational thing going on. So I'm now. 13, 14, 15, my parents an addict. My parents now in treatment trying to get their act together. They've been in treatment for 90 days, four months, five months. So I'm going to visit them. But you know what? I got an attitude now. I'm talking about the kid. I got an attitude. <laughs> I got resentments. Yeah. Okay. I'm hurt. Yep. I feel rejected. And so... I'm going to visit, and yeah, we got this surface thing going on, and I'm glad to see my parents doing their thing. I'm glad to see them trying to get on the straight and narrow. I'm glad to see them looking physically well, et cetera. Remember, I'm 14, 15 now. I'm not eight, okay? But I got my own stuff going on about what what the decisions you've made. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a dangerous age group right there. Okay. That is a that is a tough one. So I am sitting next to you. I am hugging you. I am saying I love you, but I got a lot of feelings inside. Mm-hmm. So now I'm the parent. I'm sitting there. If I'm perceptive, I know this. If I'm not perceptive, you need a bat upside your head. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, because this is your child. And what should I do here? Because I know we got to have that conversation. We got to start talking about it. How do I? How do I open the door a little bit to get this thing going? Well, we get back to the basics. 
You can't get into trouble. You can't get into trouble when it comes to this with being honest with your child and being humble and showing humility. And the first words out of your mouth, if you want to even broach that subject, should be, I'm sorry. I apologize. Now, those are only words, but they have to be stated. Yes, ultimately, you're going to be judged on what you do going forward. But at some point, there has to be an apology. There has to be, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that, I, that I, I was not there for you. I'm sorry that I put you through this. I'm sorry that, that my behavior caused you to experience everything that you have experienced. And by the way, this is, I'm saying this without you even saying a word. You haven't told me what you've experienced. I just know what I know. I've seen what I've seen. I know that you're 15. I can only imagine. I was out there on the street, so I know your peers know. Okay? So I'm taking all of that information, right? And they're all presumptions, but I'm pretty sure I'm on target, and I'm using that to gear my apology to you. And I'm using that to gear my sincerity, of, of the sincerity of my apology. Here's what we talked about earlier about making sure that there's this attitude that just because I'm in treatment, I'm in recovery, and I'm, I'm okay now, that what's the big deal? Get over it. That's, that's yesterday's news. Right. Not to them. Not right. Not to them. So. And you know what a big one is, too, um, or a thought on this line, if if you're in that situation, right, you're going to have that conversation if you're a parent and you've gotten clean and sober and like you were just saying, you're you're apologizing for things. You had better hope that you are ready to live a life of recovery. Because if you go through that very difficult conversation for both sides with the apologies and everything else, and a year later you've relapsed and you're back in it again, oh man, it's... uh you're going to be hard-pressed to have to revisit that conversation once again because your credibility is on the line. Your credibility was on the line now that you've gotten better, and if you go through the, you know, I'm better now, I'm back, I am sorry, whatever, and having that whole conversation, and you go right back out there, well, that's, there's, there's, that's the relapse the, part of it. That's the reason why we always advise those who are parents and those and those who will have to have those conversations that don't you dare, don't you dare initiate those words. Unless you're ready. Unless you are. That's right. You have seriously committed that you are done with that lifestyle and you are ready to make a change. And that is effectively a part of your past experience. Because if you are not, and you still got negative reservations, and you're still not sure, or you know, or you know, you 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 just you just don't know. Well, if you if if you just don't know, to me, there's no fence. I mean, there's no gray area. Either you're you're on this side of the fence, meaning I'm done with that lifestyle, or you're on the other side of the fence. And so, if you're not on the side of I'm done with that lifestyle, then you better not do that to your child by saying, you know, I'm sorry, I should you know, I should never have done that. And, and, and say all those things only to go back down that road. That's right. 
you you said that you, your credit your credibility will be on the line. Your credibility is on the line in the first conversation. Right. After that, if you go back on that, your credibility is shot. Yeah. After that, there's nothing you can say. You can only do. Right. See, the right, first time right, around, right. you can do simultaneous to talking. Because as you're talking, I'm also watching. You're talking, but I'm watching. Okay. So, but the second time around, if there's a second, third, fourth, or fifth time around, there's no more talking. I'm just going to watch Yeah. what you do. Now, so the the 15-year-old, you know, the, the parent has to make a tough call about whether or not, you know, each, you know, I can't, I don't, I can't generalize every 15-year-old, but, you know, and especially today's 15-year-old, but let's say back in the day, 15-year-old might not have been as forward. I mean, when I say forward, meaning like just just blurt out, you know, what their feelings are, and, you know, today's 15-year-old might, you know. Right, right. And so back in the day, the parent might have had to nudge that conversation and broach that conversation to get it going. Today, maybe not, not so much. And and what, the reason I say this is because from working with the adolescents, we've heard the the f bombs and the this and whatnot being dropped at the parents. And you know, for those of us from the old school, who never did talk to our parents that way. It was like horrifying to find out they were talking to mom and grandpa and grandma that way. And it was like, <laughs> you know, right. it was just horrifying to our ears. But it is what it is. It was what it was. But. The parent has to figure out, knowing their child, this is what we were talking about before, knowing their child, how should I, what's the best way to approach this particular child in terms of starting the conversation? Or, you know what, knowing my child, when they come, at some point, that they're going to they're gonna say, Mom, Dad, what was that about? Right. You know, so it might be a mature, a child. Okay? But we don't know. We can't say. Each situation is different, but don't think that that time, that conversation is not going to happen. Okay? Right. So, I, I, if, if I, if if I was going to give a recommendation or advice to someone on speaking to a 15-year-old without knowing the child, I would say, you know what? Put your foot in the water, put a toe in the water. You know, by starting the conversation, you know, I just want to talk about. You know what I've done, and you can then judge from their facial expression, body language, how you should if you should continue, how you proceed, how you proceed, and which direction you proceed from there. Right. You know what I mean. So that's what we try and do if they're in the treatment setting in terms of helping them have that conversation um, and preparing them to have that conversation. But unless you are Sitting in, a, you know, in a therapy type environment or counseling type, private counseling type environment where there's you, the child, and, and and someone else, you know, to help facilitate it. Right. Okay. That's a different scenario because you have someone that can facilitate drawing a little bit out of you like and a staring, mediator. Yeah, staring the conversation from you and then maybe eliciting some response from the from the child. But more often than not, in the treatment setting, that's not the case, right. because 
they meet on family visits and it's just a ca- you know casual visit and and that's usually where those conversations are going to start and and yeah. flare up so that's why we try and prepare the parents for for that what about the 18 year olds and up we're now adults they're out of high school they've been through the mill they've been through all the teasing they they've survived it and you know what they're going on they're doing their thing you know they 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 haven't succumbed to the to to the to the addictive lifestyle, you know what I'm saying? They're they're living a positive, constructive lifestyle, okay? And you're either, you know, in the early stages of your recovery, the middle stages, or you're you're you know you're you know wrapping up your treatment episode, and you've got some some clean time under your belt. Um, but this child is a, a young adult or an adult now. I keep saying child, but I mean they're. Sure. In one respect, they still are. Referring to the, cho- the, yeah. the child or the, the children child with, of the... The child within, you know? Right. So, how does that work? Well, it, I, I think those more so than any other age group really watch what you do. That speaks more volumes than anything else. You know... Is is my parent really serious about getting their their act together? Because remember, this is an adult mind now. Right. It's a child's mind. You know, we keep saying child. It's an adult mind. You know, and the relationship is now different. Because if I'm 25, usually I have a different relationship with your parent than when you were five or ten or 15. Of course. Okay. Especially if you've matured appropriately. Because mm-hmm. I like to say some for a major part of our youth. 25 is the new 15. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I know, I think... I speak from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> I think the um, advice that you gave to the caller, was it two weeks ago, um, was the best advice for, uh, I believe we had a caller call in inquiring about, you know, when to have the conversation or this conversation in particular, and his child was in their late 20s, and I think essentially you told him that you don't start that conversation. That conversation will come to you when the adult child, if you will, is ready to have that conversation, but that's not something that you initiate any longer. And I believe uh, one of our listeners contributed to that, saying that uh, you better be ready. You know not when that conversation may happen, but whenever it does happen, you better be ready for it. And again, honesty, trust, humility, ownership, taking responsibility, better lead the way from you, from your perspective as a, as as the parent. Right. Any other attitude that you may take is going to impact and affect where where things go. Right. I agree with that. Okay. Even if even if three, four, five years have passed, you have demonstrated that you are done with that life. Okay? But, <laughs> but that child hasn't come to you yet to have that conversation. But all of a sudden, year six, the child shows up and, wants, and is ready to have that conversation right. about what they experienced during that part of your life, right? what it was like for them. And it's about being all ears. 
It's about being all ears, i.e. listening, and interjecting with humility where appropriate. Uh, For example, you're absolutely right. I take responsibility for that. I own that. That wasn't you. That was me. Because if I was doing what I should have been doing, you wouldn't have experienced that. Right. And what backs you up in that scenario, you got time behind you. You have demonstrated, you know, behavior behind you, positive behavior. What backs you up is what you've proven. You know, so even though they're talking to you about that, the experience, the negative experience, that, time, that period of time, okay, you from within are supported by the fact that you know you've been doing your thing for the last five years and you can with ease or you should be able to with ease, with humility, with honesty and trust, respond to that child. Right. And take ownership where ownership needs to be taken. Right, and there's no amount of uh, there's no amount of time or time frame on your entitlement stamp. Oh, it's been ten years. You know what? Uh, the the, the, the uh, statute of limitations yeah, right. of, uh, of me taking responsibility is expired. Right. And uh, look, right. you just got to get over it. Right. No. I don't care if you were teased while you were in high school, three consecutive <laughs> years. That's right. Because I was out there doing crack. Endless. That's correct. You're you're a grown man now. Get over it. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. No. No, no, no. That's not the way it works. Okay, we've been going at it for over 40 minutes. Why don't we take a quick break and we come back and continue? Sounds good. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us, and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. The Latino Commission Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services in South San Francisco was organized and incorporated in early 1991 and going on 22 years of providing services to our community. The Latino Commission, also known as TLC, would like to offer our services to those struggling with a substance use disorder. We have residential facilities for men, women, mothers and children, outpatient programs, transitional and SLE homes to assist and promote a successful recovery for individuals. We at the Latino Commission provide educational services on self-esteem, assertiveness, life management, coping skills, anger management, limits and boundaries, and other various subjects. The Latino Commission, restoring people holistically in an environment of love and understanding that represents our culture, improving quality of life.
Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number. We're talking about parents in recovery. Pronouncing that they're back. And we're questioning, are they really back? Proclaiming. And we've been talking about the conversations that they have to have with their children if they are back in order to reestablish that relationship. We spent a little time talking about the younger group and how that conversation may go, how it may need to be broached, nudged, started. We then went to the teenagers, which in my opinion is, is probably the most difficult one to have. Um, and that one can go that one can go sideways real fast. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, if there was one age group, and then we were talking about the older group before we went to commercial, but if there's one age group where I would recommend that you know what there should be an experienced third party present, it would be the that uh, would be it. That would be it. The teenagers, because you don't know which direction they may go. <clears throat> you might we might need a couple of uh, bodyguards in case you need to physically <laughs> restrain. That's right. Physically restrain somebody. But when we left left off before commercial, we were talking about the older group, uh, the ones that are now young adults, adults, and having to have that conversation with their parents who were addicts um, at whatever stage of the recovery process their parents might be, early stage, middle stage, or out of treatment, and, you know, have some, some clean time under their belt. And I think we're in agreement that that's a conversation that the child, you know, the uh, should broach when they're ready. Right. And that really the only responsibility the parent has is to just do their thing. Um, be a good parent. Uh, stay true to yourself in your recovery process. And um more more often than not, unless there are other issues, the the the, the you know you can slide and, and and help me out here, Mr. Producer, if you have a different opinion of this. But just from my experience, and it might and there and there might be other experiences, but from what I've experienced, the you can slide back in to the parental role before that conversation happens with the adult. Because the parental role is different at that time. You're no longer the provide, you know, providing for the child, taking care of the child, feeding the child, clothing the child, etc. The child is independent. Independent. Keep saying child. They're independent. They're on their own. They're making their own way in the world. Okay. And I'm, but it doesn't mean that that conversation is not going to happen or supposed to happen. It needs to happen. And by the way, here's a here's a caveat. Yep. What if you know your child? And you know, my child is not going to bring it up unless I bring it up. Then you better bring it up. Right. The only thing you have to think about is when is the right time, the right situation, the right environment, the right circumstance? Now, is the moon shining correctly? Yeah, right, exactly. Is the sun setting properly? Exactly. You know, you have to, you have to make that call because right. you, you know your child. Yeah, that's true. I would agree with that for the most part. I would say, excuse me, uh, you did mention something that that's a point that can't be overlooked is the relationship between a parent and a child when the child becomes an adult. 
is very different, mm-hmm. almost in so that you become friends. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bit of a friendship. Mm-hmm. And where the difficulty in sliding back into the parental role might be is when the child is still a child, specifically the uh, the torturous years you mentioned of the teenager, because a part of a parent in that role beyond providing food and shelter and clothes is the disciplinary role. Mm-hmm. And it that is that I can imagine from the other perspective very very hard to jump back into jump back into yeah. to, to disciplining or uh because the the retort is so easy who are you to tell me you know what's right yeah, or you wrong were, you were out there shooting dope you can't tell me exactly and with and that's where knowing knowing your child comes in because if if during that time you know, auntie or uncle or grandma or grandpa were the primary caretakers and, you know, providing the discipline, discipline, et cetera, then guess what? See, this is why I keep mentioning humility, putting your ego and pride to the side. You're going to have to continue to do that. Put your ego and pride to the side and understand that because of decisions you've made, that may not be your role right now. Right. It may, it may still be auntie's role, uncle's role, grandma's role, grandpa's role, or whomever has been in that role while you were out there doing your stuff. So yeah, that's I mean that's a decision that has that has to be made. But if the child doesn't bring it forth, the adult child, then yeah, at some point you, as a parent, are going to have to broach broach that subject. And uh, like we said, based on you knowing your child, you'll know when the right time, and and so on and so forth. But let's establish we can't we cannot emphasize enough, regardless of the the age when you have that conversation, the tenets of the conversation must always remain the same. You got to be honest. Humble. Humble. Trust trust your child that at some point, maybe not immediately, so be careful of your expectations in terms of how they may respond. That's another warning. It's another cautionary tale. Be careful of your expectations because it's not about you. Okay, so you may get a response that you're not expecting. You may get a response you don't like. That's all part of the process. This is a process. It's not a it's not a one and done. It's a process. Right. Okay. And so we're gonna be honest, we're gonna trust, we're gonna show humility, okay, we're gonna have empathy. All of that in in understanding that it's not about us, it's about the child. Right. Regardless if that child is now thirty five years old, married with children. <laughs> That's right. That's okay. right. It doesn't erase what happened when they were 13, 14, and 15. It doesn't erase it. Right. That's right. Now, I don't know if you have, uh, Mr. Producer, but I've I've witnessed, just just for the record, I've wit- I've witnessed these conversations going sideways. Yeah. Okay. In in you know, family association settings, the weekly visits, and 
The only reason they go sideways has nothing to do with the reaction, the response, the outbursts from the child. It goes sideways because of the, the way the parent is handling it. Right. Keeping in mind, I'm the party that has contributed to what's in front of me. I'm the party that has contributed to what they're feeling. Right. What their experience has been. Okay. So if the visit ends up with two people screaming at each other at the top of their top of their lungs, I mean their their vocal cords, you can bet in any treatment setting when that visit is over that that the parent is going to be the one that's going to hear about it. Of course. Yeah. Because uh, in, in, in the best case scenario, you should only hear one person. Yeah. If they're venting, let it happen. Right. But we certainly shouldn't hear two people going at it. Right. Yeah. No, I've seen it. I've been I've been present mm-hmm. for it. And um, yeah, you're right. The the escalation or lack thereof always hinges on that parent's response to response to the response. Mm-hmm. And like you said, all kind of stemming from uh, having to manage your expectations. Just because you're feeling good and on top of the world, you feel like you've overcome the struggle and you can't wait to be re-engaged in your family's life and your children's life and you want to share that with them, you always have to keep in mind the angle that they're coming from. And that excitement may not be mutual, at least not in that moment. And so you need to temper that a little bit um, and definitely go in there with managed expect you know having managed your expectations and you know making sure that you're ready for a response that you may not like mm-hmm. i agree 100% um i think we've uh talked this topic up it's i'm looking by the way i'm looking at a couple of email questions that we have that are just in line with this topic so when we go into our uh, recovery support time, I think it would be appropriate to even start out with these two because they're right in line with the same, what we're talking about today. Some of those email questions out there? Yeah. I'm, so, I'm good with that. Uh, unless you have anything else, um, I'm done. I think we've got our message out there concisely, emphatically, uh, what needs to happen how it needs to happen, what the attitude of the parent needs to be. Oh, by the way, your body language needs to be appropriate because your body speaks before you do. So make sure that your body language is appropriate and make sure that you're reading the body language of your child so that it can help guide you and steer you in terms of how you proceed, what direction you go, etc. But I'll close with honesty, trust, humility, and empathy. Those are the four tenets you need to exhibit in order to re-engage with your children after experiencing uh, a period of addiction uh, for which they also experienced uh, had a ne- negative experience in their life. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's said perfectly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we uh, we see we do have some callers on hold as well. So we are aware of you guys. We are going to get into recovery support time here. So after the quick commercial break, 
Uh, we will go ahead and take your guys' calls. Thank you so much for being patient with us, and thank you for joining us on Roach on Recovery. Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646 Five six four nine nine zero nine. That's six four six five six four nine nine zero nine. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail dot com. That's ocgworkca at gmail dot com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on recovery. Recovery support time. A time for us to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery, 646-564-9909. We're going into our recovery support time. That was a heavy topic. It was indeed. <laughs> it was indeed. It took a long time, to, and I'm sure we could still talk about it. But All right, so we're going to go right to the phone. Let's see, Mark from Redwood City has been holding the longest. Mark, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good. Speak up a little bit, Mark. Okay, hi, can you hear me better? Yes. Hi. Um, hi. I just want to say, you know, I enjoy your show, and my my question to you is, um, Thank you. oh, you're welcome. I've been, um, I am in a, uh, uh, I am in tre- uh, treatment in a drug program. I've been clean for about seventy five days now. Um, I've also, and I've also um, been off cigarettes for for about thirty, thirty four, thirty five days now. Um, Good stuff. Hello? Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Oh, hi. I'm sorry. We had a bad connection there. Um, I don't know how how uh, how far we got, but uh, um, like I said, I've been I've been in recovery for about 75 days now. Um, I've been off cigarettes for about 35 days now. My my question is, I, I I've definitely been um, acting acting out around the, the the cigarettes, and I'm definitely in in like relapse mode with the cigarettes. Uh, does, does that does that mean um, does that mean that I'm in relapse mode for you know for the drugs as well? No, not necessarily. But let let's understand this about getting you know you you said you've been off cigarettes for 34 days. Yes. All right. So we know the body, the 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 physical side of the addiction is done. The body's no longer craving the nicotine. So what you're dealing with is really the, you know, nicotine is a is a mood-altering drug. And so how long did you smoke for, by the way? 30 years. Oh, 30 years. So you're, you smoke for 30 years, you, you, you quit, you, you're, you're 34 days in. Man, it's going to take a little bit of time for you to adapt mood-wise, psychologically, et cetera, to what the nicotine was giving you. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean it's tied into, you know, the other substances that you're re- recovering from. But you know what But you know what I like that, that I heard from you? That's very important. What's that? That you're aware of it. You're aware of, it, of what you're noticing. And you're trying to t- okay. figure it out and determine, you know, what's what. And that's great. Okay. That's great that you're noticing that, hey, you know what? My mood's been off. I've been edgy. Yeah. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. You know, what's what's going on? Is it is it this or is it that? The fact that you're aware enough to start asking yourself those questions, that's great. Yeah, I do. You even, know, if I don't, don't, even if you don't know the answer, by the way, it's still great that you're aware enough to ask, start asking those questions. Yeah, I mean, as far as like the relapsing with the drug, I don't, I don't think I am, but I just, you know, I just want, I want to make sure. Okay. I think you're good, sir. Just keep it up. Keep up the good work. All right. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for your help, and like I said, I enjoy your show. Have a good evening. Thank you. Bye bye. Good stuff. Okay, let's go to Catherine from Brooklyn, USA. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Miss Jackson. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Much better than last week. Um, that's good. a great topic. I made a lot of mistakes with this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, my children put me in recovery. Mm-hmm. My children was at the time 16, 21, and 26. Ouch. And um, when I came home, well, the first time I got a call upstairs and Alan told me to come upstairs, my daughter was on the phone, and she was, like, in a fight with somebody that I was using drugs with. And she didn't understand. She thought the lady was lying. And I had to tell her the truth. I had to let her know, you know, that she's telling the truth. It's not a lie, but you can't be out there fighting everybody because of what I did. Mm-hmm. So I was allowed to have a family visit. She came in and she was crying and everything. She wanted me to go home because I had, even though I was an addict, I wasn't the type of addict that would stay out um, at nights and stuff like that. 
And I had mm-hmm. to explain to this 16-year-old kid, I don't know you and you don't even know me. I have to stay here so that I can get to know who I am and begin to know who you are. Okay, even though she cried and everything, she went home. My next um, incident was my son. I made a big mistake with him. He came over after I got out of treatment, and he wanted to know, at age 27, when the drugs become more important. At this time, Mm -hmm. I'm out of treatment now. And Mm -hmm. my whole thing to him was, when I got strung out, you didn't matter. The drug did. I lost the relationship with my son for two years because of those words. Mm-hmm. Um, my next encounter was once I went into being a, a counselor and going through the um, trainings and everything, I learned how to, to talk to them, how to explain what was going on with myself. It was a mm-hmm. many days I came home from upstate and wanted to be a parent but wasn't allowed to be a parent. I couldn't even come in my own house. Right. The kids had the keys because they didn't trust that I would be in here shooting dope because that's what they were used to. Right. And I had to go one kid to another kid and ask her to please talk to this here child. But it took me years to learn how to talk to my children to realize that you just can't come back and want to be a parent because you never was one. These kids raised themselves. You know, and that was a hurtful thing. But I can say today, thank God we're all best of friends. Everybody got themselves on track, you know, and they come to me with problems. I can tell them things now. But just coming out of recovery, being a parent is not working because I hadn't been one for like 16 years. I hadn't been a parent. I had been on drugs in the street for 15 years. But what saved me also was the teachings that I got from Alan Benjamin. The mm-hmm. um, being, a, being an addict that was an old user. I was a, mm-hmm. a parent before I started using drugs. Right. But I had caused so much damage. You know, my son wanted to kill up the neighborhood and all of that stuff. So for me to say to this boy that drugs meant more to me than you did, we okay now. But that could have mm-hmm. been a detrimental thing to all of us, you know, and as the host said before, and you did, as far as letting them down and going back on drugs, when I came out of daytime, they met me at the front door and said, you're only going through this, we're only going through this one time, if you relapse, you're on your own, you know, so I had a lot of reasons to stay drug free, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't easy, it really wasn't easy at all, I had to earn to be mm-hmm. a mother to these kids, really. Right. But like I said, it was a great show. I really appreciate you and the host, and I'm so glad he's back. And thanks a lot for listening to me. Bye-bye. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Boy, that, that story tells itself. It does. And I could see that, like, in my mind's eye as she's describing that, right? Mm-hmm. Like meeting, you know, whatever, for the coin ceremony or whatever, meeting her to to say hey welcome home and like hey this is this is a one this is a one shot deal right here mm-hmm. we're not doing it again and that makes a a lot of sense and I think you Catherine the host is happy to be back <laughs> yes she said I think she said to call the host uh, I think we all heard that loud and clear <laughs> don't be thanking him Catherine uh 
let's see. Um, Paige. Paige Hello? from Reading. Welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Okay, so I'm wondering, so right now I'm in treatment, and I'm finding myself I'm really irritable all the time, and I'm and I'm getting mad, and I I feel I don't feel good very often. And there's tools in the house I could be utilizing, but it doesn't make me feel any better. And I'm telling you, like I look at somebody and I and I get irritated, and I just don't want to be around certain people, and I don't know how to deal with it right now. Sometimes I just want to run away and or go to my room and, and not be around anybody and. That's not how treatment works, and so I'm kind of struggling, and I don't like to cry, but every now and then, I've, the last two days I've cried twice, and I don't know why or what's going on with me. And I know I'm not going to go out and use over it, but I'm sure that if I were out there and I was feeling this way, I'd use, but I don't know how to deal with it while I'm here. Um, how long have you been in your treatment setting that you're in? Like a month and a half now. What drugs were you using prior to? Meth. And I've been, uh, I was in jail, I've been sober for almost seven months now. Okay, so you've been free from meth at least seven months? Yeah. Okay. I was once told that the hardest part of treatment is being able to deal with the many different personalities characters and people that you're going to experience as you go through treatment. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the treatment itself and the things I'm going to learn about myself and so on and so forth, but being able to deal with other people and not let other people and other things run me out the door. Yeah. And so you're just going through a rough patch. I hope so. You're aware that no, that's all it is. And it's also a lesson and a, a, a test for real life. Because when you go through your treatment experience and you go back out there to resume your life, okay, you're going to have rough patches. What are you going to draw back on to say, you know what, I can make it through this? Right. You can look back and say, well, you know what, I remember when I was in treatment, I was really struggling about a month and a half, two months in, I was, you know, I was ready to beat everybody up. I, mean, I didn't want to talk to anyone, and but somehow I just took it a day at a time and just fought my way through and just got over that hump. Okay. That's what you got to do. You got to fight your way through it. Grind, you got to grind your way through it. People okay. who successfully complete treatment... More often than not, if they were to do a statistical test, count people who struggle, people who have trials and tribulations, those are the ones who are succeeding more than the ones who just breeze on through. Yeah, I believe that. Okay. So it's just a trial and a tribulation for you to pass. Okay. That's all it is. Okay? All right. <laughs> and by the Thank way, there's you. nothing wrong with crying. There's nothing wrong with crying. Cry it out. Cry it out. 
I get so exhausted, though. I just like I cry like two tears, and I'm tired, and I can't. I don't even want to go through the rest of the day. I just want to lay down. That's good. You know, you have any energy left to do anything negative. Okay, that's a good way to look at it. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, bye, Paige. All right. Bye. Got to people. Got to get over those humps. Yeah. You got to. Yeah. You got to push through them. Yeah. Push through them. Um, remember those two questions that I talked about that were tied into our yes. So uh, one from Shane. He wrote. He writes a question. How do I break the cycle of addiction with my kids? So I'm interpreting that question to mean that so you know he became an addict and now his children, or one of his children, let's say, are. Folks, if you if you hear any noise in the background, I'm fighting a fly. <laughs> <laughs> I might hit the mic by accident. Um, if this was on YouTube, it would be comedy. But yes, um, how do you break the cycle of addiction with your kids? But simple answer: you be the role model. You break your addiction, and then model for them how it's to be done. That's the way you break that cycle. Someone has to break it. So why not why don't why can't it be you? And then what we hope is that by you doing doing what you need to do, that they will look at you and say, Wow, okay, you know what? My dad has straightened himself out. He's now on straight and narrow. I can do that also. May not happen immediately. Depends on their age. Here we go again with that age thing. Because if they're teenagers, there's not much you can do. Especially if you try and get in there and say, you know, you're now you're now on the straight and now, and you try and say, hey, stop doing what you're doing. They're gonna look at you and say, what? Well, look what you was just doing ten months ago. Easy. Yep. So, show and prove. Actions. They can look at what you're doing. Another question. This is from Eric. This is a this is a great question, Mr. Producer. Okay. This is a great Eric? question. Okay. My family hides my addiction from my friends. No, he says our friends. How do I how do I go about telling them that I don't want to lie about it anymore? Woo! That is a great loaded. Question. That's true. That's true. That and that's boy. That's. That's tough. So he has no problem bringing Admitting forth it. the truth. Right. This is who I am or who I was. This is what I'm doing to try and correct it. With, you know, this is it. You know, just laying it out there. But the family is putting up a front. Ashamed. Embarrassed. Embarrassed. Yeah. What would you tell him to do? Wait for the first formal get together and gathering <laughs> and drop of it. all the friends and drop it like it's hot. Clink your clink your uh water glass and uh I need everyone's attention right now and just one stop shop. Let go. the chips fall where they may. Yep. See mom and dad's jaw drop. Grandpa pass out. <laughs> yeah. You might you might have an uncle stand up after you and say, Me too. 
Yeah, and he's been hiding it because yep. that's the family dynamic. Next, next thing you know, all the secrets are coming out. There you go. There you have it, Eric. I, and, and I agree 100%. Drop it. When everyone's together. All right, let's go. What, what else we got here? David asks, why is structure so important in recovery? Good question. Solid. Any program worthy of going to that you find in, I'd imagine, the U.S. or even uh, internationally is going to be a very structured environment. And and the reason why structure is important is because we try and mimic what real life is going to be. And in most residential treatment environments, they mimic the traditional work day, right? Not the swing shift, even though in real life, if people work in the swing and work in the overnight, work in the uh, the overnight shift, but they try and mimic the traditional work day. So you, you get up at six o'clock in the morning, and you have your, you know, you go you be at work by nine, you get off at five, you're home by six thirty, six o'clock, six thirty, depending on traffic, and so they want to get you in that. You know, get back used to some form of normalcy. normalcy to your life. Not to mention eating properly. And there's a question about that, which we're gonna we're gonna ask. But uh, why is structure so important? When you leave any treatment setting and you are re-entering society as a person that's in recovery, you better have your life structured. Now. They should misinterpret structure to mean that, and, and I always caution people, if you think that you're going to schedule every minute of your day to do something so that there's never any time when you're just not doing anything, Wrong. you don't even have any time to daydream, I said, you're going to fall flat on your face. I said, because that's not real life. What we mean by structure is, you know, either you're working, you're going to school, you're involved in, in in positive, constructive activities. You have hobbies. You, you you socialize. You recreate. You know, you have a full life, which includes doing nothing sometimes. Yeah, you're cleaning your house. You're watching a, a game at home with your friends. You're lounging around. Exactly. Staring up at the uh, uh, airplanes uh, landing. Okay, for some of us. <laughs> Um, there's nothing wrong with staring at the airplane. Okay, no, you're right. Um, here, you talk about a loaded question. See if you can read in between the lines of this one. What can I learn being in treatment in my own community? So I, this is what I think, uh, this is asked by Angel. This is what I think he means by that. He's in a treatment setting in the community that he actually lives in, in where he did, where he you know, did his dirt and, and whatnot. So he's asking, what can I learn? And how is that beneficial to me? Well, ultimately, and I say ultimately, so that's big picture, if you want to get recovery, it doesn't make a difference where it is. It doesn't make a difference. If you want it, that is. Here's the caveat. If you want it, it doesn't make a difference if it's right next door to the crack house you used to get high in. 
Now, of course, of course, ideally, ideally, okay, the best thing is to remove people from the environment in which they were in their addiction and take them somewhere else so that they're away from that environment for a period of time so that they can just breathe some different air, see some different things, and just, you know, think differently because they're not seeing the, the same place that they were all the time. There is truth to that, and there is benefit to that. No one can dispute. But guess what? That may not be your reality. Where you are, the state you're in, the treatment programs may not be set up like they are in uh, like we're, we're used to back in the day in New York, where you can, you know, come from Brooklyn and go up to the Catskill Mountains 200, uh, 200 miles away and experience treatment next to the cows. Most people aren't going to experience that. Most treatment programs are going to be in the communities. Most of the outreaches in New York are in the communities. They're, 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 they're located where the people live. So the key is if you want it, it's irrelevant, ultimately, if you want it. So, Angel, I say to you, if you happen to be going into, if you happen to be in treatment and it's located in the community that you lived in, if you want to get clean and if you want recovery, it doesn't make a difference where, where it happens, ultimately. Okay, let's go to Brian from Redwood City. Brian? Yes, good evening. How are you? Good. Brian, before before you go, I just want to let you know that uh, my producer, call screener, engineer, has your, your name written as Brain on the oh, screen. Oh, excellent. <laughs> what can we do Perfect. for you, sir? Oh, excellent. Yes, I was uh, enjoying your show tonight, and I was wondering, um, uh, I have a question for you. Sure. And the, the question is, um, what is the best advice you've ever given to someone uh, in, um, you know, as we go through, as we're in recovery, the going through our ups and downs and finding, uh, like, in censoring ourselves. What's the best advice I've ever given someone? Yes. The best advice I've ever given is, regardless of whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're going through, just do not leave. Okay. So... Whatever treatment setting you're in, no matter how bad it gets in terms emotionally, mentally, etc., no matter how painful it is, whatever you're talking about, whatever you're reliving, just don't leave. It will pass. That's the best advice and the same advice I will always give. Thank you. You're welcome. What do you think about that? So, it's a breathtaking advice. Breathtaking advice. No, it's you know, the same advice I was given. Well, and it's the same thing is um, kind of like you stating something can be complex and simple at the same time. Mm-hmm. Where it seems like some really simple advice, you know, just don't leave, give it a shot. But that can be so challenging for mm-hmm. some people. Mm-hmm. And really, if you do, just not leave. Just stick it through. Mm-hmm. Be open to it. Um, it's incredible what that can do for you. Fighting the urge to to give up or it's too hard or I don't like it anymore, just 
Stay where you're at. Yell, scream, uh-huh. cry, throw a chair. I'm not, I'm not, uh, what's the word? Uh, saying I want you to throw chairs wherever you are. But I'm basically saying feel what you feel, but just don't leave. Right. Okay. Uh, frequent caller. Kimberly. Hi. From Half Moon Bay. Hi. Yeah. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Um, I'm question for you. Got some homework for us. You got some homework for us, right? I got some homework for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, I want to know how long um does it take for drugs or alcohol to get through your system? Um. Yeah. You know. Kimberly, that actually depends on the the drug that you're referring to um, or alcohol. Uh, drugs like marijuana can actually stay in your system upwards of 45 days, whereas mm-hmm. you can, as far as what would still be in your bloodstream and testable for something like alcohol or methamphetamines, you're looking at, I mean, alcohol can be a couple of days, two days, three days, mm-hmm. methamphetamines. Maybe up to five or six days, but with drugs like that, <clears throat> excuse me, you're looking at potentially, um, you know, about a 30-day, a 30 to 60-day window to feel like you're the the fog is gone and you're out of your head. Um, but like I said, as far as being in your bloodstream, being active in your bloodstream, um, alcohol, amphetamines, things like that, you're looking at about a 72-hour give or take um, shelf life, if you will, on those. Whereas marijuana can stay um, in your bloodstream for about a month and a half. Um, and then cigarettes, I mean, we might as well include cigarettes or nicotine. Uh, nicotine, again, you're looking at about uh, maybe 72 hours again, give or take. Um, however, the effects of nicotine or smoking cigarettes um, can take up to, for your lungs anyway, to be fully clean, can take up to 20 years. Um, from when you wow. quit to when your lungs will become as if you've never smoked to begin with. So it's a question that has some, uh, it's it's open to some interpretation because it depends on what you're talking about, whether or not your head still feels foggy because you feel like, you know, it's still in you as opposed to what's in your bloodstream and testable, but those are the general figures. Well, um, the reason why I ask is because, uh I've been told by quite a few people in like two, it's two to three years to finally get it all cleared out of your system. Um, unfortunately, I just had an MRI done and they found small blood clots in the, the small vein in my brain. Mm-hmm. So they got me on a, a treatment plan for it because they don't want, um, they're trying to prevent an aneurysm. Right. Yeah. So, and, so all that, I mean, and that's, so that's, uh, that's medical, and that's something okay. separate from the drugs themselves. As far as people telling you two to three years, um, I'm not sure exactly what they're referring to, but that yeah. window is not actually existent. You know, when we're talking about just the time frame that the drugs are are then, with you. Let me just add real quick. I, so, but yeah. in in a treatment sense, and we got we got to wrap this call up, Kimberly. Sorry, but in a treatment sense, usually yeah. the fog and the haze and all of that clears up. Okay. I would say about 90 days. Okay. Um, All right. One last thing to ask you. Um, Real quick. In, um, 
meth. Um, so, I mean, do drugs and alcohol, is that a symptom of aneurysms and stuff like that? Or is that, like, totally separate? I mean, because totally obviously totally. It's, they can't, it is. To, I mean, we, we, we can't sit here and tell you that because that's a medical question. Okay. So only a doctor can tell you whether or not you know, using those drugs have contributed to a medical condition. But we can't tell you that. We're not doctors. Okay? Okay. All right. Um, do you have one last thing? Um, I want to this is a radio show that you have. Um, like, can people extend it out to the radio and, and listen to your talk show? Because it's really, I mean, it, I, lo- I like it a lot, and I think this would reach a lot of people, you know? Anybody, anybody can listen. Anybody can listen, and anybody, and anybody, can, and anybody can call in. Okay. Oh, it's just that way. There's no radio show yet on it. It is. It is. Mhm. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. You know, people have asked that. You know, when when if they're in treatment and, you know, get medical attention and they find they have a medical issue, whether or not there's a correlation. There's a correlation and no one knows. I mean, sometimes even the doctor doesn't know. Right. You know, it can just be random. But just the fact that you're in treatment and, and, and also getting medically checked out to get you, make sure that you're physically doing well, they find stuff that right. you, while you're out there in your addiction that you wouldn't have paid any attention to. So right. that happens a lot. Uh, let's see. Donald asks, uh, what signs do you look for in someone that's about to relapse? So let me just rephrase this question. That's what he wrote, but let's, like, what what would someone be exhibiting where you would say... What are the flags? Flags, yeah, that you would be saying, you know what, that person looks like they're heading down the wrong road. Let's say... I mean, you just, it depends on how well you know the person and mm-hmm. if you knew them before they used, but kind of old behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, old things, haunts. Yeah, and, and things that just don't coincide with living a life of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe someone starts to be dishonest or they lose their job, they drop out of school, mm-hmm. they, um, you know, maybe they start hanging around with the wrong crowd or they're becoming a little too confident too soon in their boundaries and what they can handle, i.e. maybe hanging out the bar with friends just to dance but not be a part of the drinking Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, You know, so there's really a plethora of things you can look for, and it's really unique to the individual. Mm -hmm. But if you really know the person, it's um, you can pretty much see a, a dramatic change. If you've seen someone go through recovery, and how they are and who they are when they're clean and sober, mm-hmm. um, there's almost like this light that resonates from them, and they're really trying to do the right thing in all facets. Mm-hmm. And um, you can see that light dissipate pretty quickly when they start heading in the other direction. Okay. Uh, let's see. What else we got here? You I, you look like you might have a call on the board. I don't. He, he might know you. All you New Yorkers run in the same circles, but I'm not sure if he wants to talk to the host or not. Well, you're the call screener. You gotta let I, me know. I think he does. I think. I mean, I would have, you know, I would have noted that he just wanted to listen if he told me that. But I, I did tell him I'd put him on hold and the host would patch him through. And he said, "Okie dokie." Oh, okay. Well, let's bring him on. 
Mr. How David. you doing? Good. David How are you, brother? Pretty good. And you, my brother. How you? How's it going? Good. Good. Welcome to yeah, our show. Thank you, first time caller. I listened to your show last week for a little while. I've been listening patiently, and uh, I like everything you say about the parenting. I know they go through different stages, like you know, with the with the kids, you know, uh, two three years old. Like when I was in treatment, my daughter was uh, three years old. Mm-hmm. But with the adolescent, is a very very tricky subject. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm glad you know you touched on a whole lot of good stuff, and I just you know just wanted to say hi. Did you get my picture? Yes, we did. We were talking about it early earlier in the show. Trying to, we were trying to figure out um, whether or not uh, I, I don't know if you caught the part of the show, Dave, where I told the story. No, no, no. No, no, I didn't hear the story. Please tell okay, it. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to repeat it because the okay. story had to do with you. You you actually when when before the season started in 1989 for the Daytop Raiders, the Daytop basketball team, Mike Cato took a couple of us uh, to Monticello, New York, to the sporting goods store. And uh, he bought me a pair of sneakers because I didn't have any, and you were the one who paid for them. Wow, you're kidding me. You were yep. wow. And so what I said was is that when what that left an image on me in terms of being uh, generous to others who were in treatment and didn't have and and doing the same because it was done for me by someone else, such as yourself. Well, you know, that's not the... That might have been the first time, but that's not been the last time that I have done that. Wow, unbelievable. So I you have got the a same great picture. Show. Go Thank ahead, you. you got the Thank same you. picture? Yeah, I got the same picture up in my office, and we were just trying to determine whether or not the sneakers were uh, Nikes or uh, or ponies. But I can't tell from the picture. I tried to zoom in, but uh, those are the ones you bought, my friend. Wow, I got I got a I got a sneaker addiction. Quiet. <laughs> As do a lot of New Yorkers. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, David, I'm well, glad let, that you. Go ahead. Great. Like you know, you keep it up, man, and keep the the torch going. We will do our no. best to do so. Okay, I'm gonna stay. You know, I'm gonna be, be a frequent listener. All right, appreciate it, sir. Okay, all right. Have a Thank good you. night. You too. Thank you. I, I saw your face when I said Nike. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> and Nikes. <laughs> oh, those are some nice Nikes you got on there. <laughs> oh boy! All right. That's what we say. All right, and say water for the for the audience. Right? Water. Yeah. Coffee. All right. Oh, coffee. Yeah, I hear you. All right. You guys got a station out here. Coffee. K O F K O F Y. That's right. Okay. All right. Let's go to Sergio in San Francisco. How you doing tonight? Good. Sergio. My before, question. Before you, before you start with your question. I need to ask you a question. Do you mind? No, of course. Go ahead. Are the Giants going to end up in the cellar this season? We are going to take it all the way again. Okay. Disconnect them. Take them <laughs> off the air. 
Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, round of applause. All right, Sergio. What's your question, sir? My question is, how long does it take to detox? Is there like a certain amount of time? It depends from? Uh, Alcohol. Yeah, uh so again with alcohol and it depends uh, how long how long were you drinking or how Let's long have 12, you been drinking 12 years 12, about 15 12 years and this is my first time you know actually trying to get help to trying to get help to get uh, just to get better at it Hello Sergio? Yes. Okay. When you so say yeah, I've been detox. drinking for 12, 15 years, and I finally stopped drinking cold cut turkey, and I was just wondering how long will it take to detox because I've been feeling the the sweats. Okay. So you didn't go through an alcohol detox before you went into treatment? Correct. Okay. That's what I was gonna say. So that could be that could be a tricky one because depending upon how heavily you've been drinking, and it just quit cold turkey, um, there are a lot of medical things that could come up as a result of that. Uh, a lot of medical things that can actually be um, pretty dangerous for folks. Um, once you go through the bit where it's out of your system and, and medically you're doing okay, then you know detox being I guess a subjective word for some people. Then you can start to look at, you know, when you're going to start to feel a little better, when your head starts feeling a little more clear, when physically you start feeling better. But as far as drinking for 12 years and just quitting cold turkey, I would, you know, I would recommend that wherever you are, you just, you know, you really monitor yourself. You be aware of how you feel physically. And if, you know, for any reason you feel that something's not right or whatever, that you don't hesitate to take care of your medical needs because that can be... Um, like like the host said, that can be life threatening. I see. Yeah, because I started trying to do exercise and I started feeling a little weary and a little just you mm-hmm. know not fully to my full health. Right. Take it easy. Take your time. Okay. Because since you didn't go through an alcohol detox, you're actually just detoxing on your own. So just take it easy. Take it easy. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, sir. You guys have a good evening. Okay. You Bye-bye. Well. So, yeah, I mean, normally we would recommend someone that uh, if they're going to go into treatment and they've been drinking that long to... If you go cold turkey, you have a oh, medical facility. Oh, yes, because you can die from right. alcohol. You absolutely detox, can. Or not detoxing properly, having a medical detox from alcohol, I should state. Um... One of the things I want to say before we close out today is, so I, I picked a song to close with today. Now, it's going to sound familiar, people, because I used it last week, but the reason I had it lined up last week was because we were going to touch on the topic that we did today last week. So after all these excuses that I'm blathering about, okay, <laughs> the song is really for, you know, if you listen to the words, it's it's talking to the parent talking to the child. It's a message from the parent to the child. 
That's the theme of the song. And the crowd waits on these now. Okay. <laughs> well, that's too much. Don't put so much pressure on me. Okay. <laughs> you got a following who waits on these now. So, um, do we have time for one more, or are we? No, we're right up no, against yeah. it. Goodness you got about gracious. thirty seconds before no, I cut you I'm off. Gonna, all right. No, I can't get one in in that time. <laughs> can't get one in. Well, I'm sure our our topic that we had is going to come back. Of course, just through obvious questions and uh, and callers, and we'll continue to touch on it. Um, so I want to thank uh, our callers, our people who sent in questions via email. We'll get to the rest of the questions hopefully next week because there was a number we didn't get to. And uh, welcome back our co-host, producer, engineer, call screener. Is that, that's four four jobs in one? Four hats. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, we're good. Perfect. Beautiful. Yeah. Again, we just want to thank everybody for the support, all our callers, listeners. Uh, we wish everybody a safe end of the week and a fun-filled weekend. We will catch you next Tuesday. Go Mets.
for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4pm Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCG CA and on Twitter at OCG CA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.